There's not much I want to say about this month's episode. It's a single story, maybe the longest story I've ever written. And it was hard to write, too, for more than one reason. Hope you like it. This month, on Death, Dying, and Other Things, a single story in two parts. In What I Found in the Woods, A Man Must Care for Something He Doesn't Understand. Death and dying are the threshold between this world and the next, the boundary between light and dark, the barrier between worlds, and that's where we're going. We are going into the shadows to bring you stories of horror and heartbreak. From the Phantom Podcast Network, this is Death, Dying, and Other Things. I'm Justin Buskey. Stay with us. trees hardly moved that day. There was no breeze to push through the branches, no wind to rustle the leaves. All that was audible was the twigs beneath my boots and the call of the birds around me. The lack of wind meant it was hot that day in the forest. Minutes into my hike, I was already sweating. A short hike, one that I made often, through the wild woods behind my neighborhood. I never took the same path through the forest, instead recklessly winding between trees, taunting fate, daring myself to get lost. But I was always able to find my way back out. Some inborn gift left me with an internal map of my path each time I dove into the woods, one that I could follow back out when I was ready for the hike to end. The sun was low in the sky already. I always hiked at the end of the day, testing my speed, challenging myself to get out of the woods by the time it got dark. I started to worry that I may not make it that day. I had started later than usual, and the sky was dancing with oranges and pinks. Fifteen minutes later, the birds had stopped singing, and the evening breeze had picked up, and I was certain I would not beat the sun. Turning around, something fell from above me, impacting the ground with a sickening plop. Peering upwards, I couldn't tell where it came from. It may have been a tree, maybe something perched in the branches that lost its footing. It could have come from the sky, or maybe even higher than that. It made my stomach turn when my alarmed eyes peeled down from the sky to the thing at my feet. And that's what it was. Nothing could better describe what I looked down at in that moment than the word thing. Globular, mostly red but pink in some places and green in others. Vaguely spherical. It had no shape and all shapes at once. And the smell. It didn't hit me at first, but as I leaned to get a better look at it, the stench assaulted my nostrils. Deep and earthy, 
yet sharp, like mushrooms forgotten in the back of the refrigerator. I anticipated that at any moment it might move, attempt to escape. Maybe it felt threatened by my close proximity and would take a more defensive stance. Perhaps some of those folds in the fleshy covering that I had no better word for than skin would open up, peel back, and reveal some needle-like defense mechanisms that would launch from this small lump and hurtle through the air, embedding into my eyes. None of that ever happened. I looked at the thing for a good while. Ten minutes must have passed. The sky and the woods around me dimmed, and still it simply laid on the ground. Every now and then, it would tremble like gelatin, as if quivering in anticipation of some event that would soon befall it. Its appearance and its scent, oddly, were the least distressing aspects of the thing I had happened upon. Far more concerning, or alternatively far more disconcerting, was the inexplicable feeling of connection I was having as I stared down at it. A feeling of attachment, a feeling of kinship even. It was as if it had come from me, or more troubling, I had come from it. That at some point in the past, a portion of that flesh had sloughed off, scurried away, and 35 years later grown into the man I now call myself. My heart grew heavy in my tightening chest as I gazed down on the thing. And though I tried to fight it, the emotion that was swelling inside me grew to a crescendo such that I was unable to deny its effect on me any longer. I was feeling love for the thing. Deep and primordial love, as if a sister I had not seen in years had now walked out of the airport and smiled at me waiting with my car. With horror, I now realized that I could not just step over this thing, this thing I felt so close to, and walk out of the woods. My blood ran cold as I considered the only option I had. I would have to take this thing home. But how? I was too scared of it to touch it. I didn't know what the thing was, despite all the affections I had for it. Similar things in the ocean are known to sting, paralyze, and cause swift death just by brushing against them. I wanted to avoid anything like that. I sat against a tree and removed my right boot and sock. Once the sock was off of my foot, I replaced the boot and then returned to the thing. The sun was nearly gone now. Getting out of the woods would be more difficult, to be sure but I trusted my instincts on that front. The thing, however, seemed to be changing colors in response to the retreating light. The reds were deeper, the pinks were nearly non-existent, and the greens had diminished into some sickly yellow. I placed the toe of my boot near the thing and slid one side of my socks opening beneath it. Then I stretched the opening out, such that I could scoop the thing into the sock with a small stick. Even stretched, the sock proved barely able to accept the thing's circumference, and when I shook the sock to slide the thing down to the toe, it only made it halfway. 
I made it out of the woods just fine, as I usually did, even after the sun's retreat behind the horizon. I tied the sock around my belt, and with each step, the soft, fleshy thing bounced off of my thigh. I kept the sock tied up and put the thing in the passenger seat and could see it squirm inside of its prison the whole drive home. Arriving in my small apartment, I placed my sock, still tied off with the thing squirming more than ever, on the table and fetched a glass bowl from the cabinet. It was a bowl I think I had never used for its proper purpose. I kept it in the leftmost cabinet in my kitchen, the one above the refrigerator, the one that required standing on tiptoe on top of a dining chair, and still I could barely reach it. Once I had retrieved the clear bowl from its perch high in the kitchen and brought it down into this world, I untied the sock, grabbed the toe, and overturned it above the bowl. When the thing didn't budge from its cotton prison, I grabbed the sock just above the lump created by the spherical monstrosity and squeezed it out like you would the last few drops of toothpaste from a spent tube. That metaphor was more accurate than you might realize, too. The cotton of the sock, where the lump had been, was thick with some clear goo that now plopped out of the sock and into the bowl, along with the thing that I had found. I sat at the table, watching the thing in the bowl for quite a while. It moved the same way it did in the woods, still mostly, but occasionally quivering like it had just experienced a scare. I wanted to monitor the thing, see if it moved at all under its own power. It didn't the whole time I stared at it in the kitchen. I left it in the bowl while I went off and took a shower, and when I had returned, it hadn't moved. I made myself a simple dinner, and it didn't move while I ate. I laid on the couch and read, and glanced over to the glass bowl on the kitchen table, and the most movement that came from that little lump of flesh were those trembling quivers, like it was cold. My heart ached for it, so I went to the linen closet and acquired a small dish rag, which I then rolled up and wrapped around the inside of the bowl packing it in between the glass and the thing so that it might have a little bit of comfort in the night. I stared at the ceiling from my bed for quite a while that night, thinking of the little thing in the glass bowl that was resting on the table in the other room. Those little shivers that seemed to be the thing's only form of expression had taken on a different meaning to me in the intervening hours since I wrapped the thing in a dish towel. I no longer felt that those shakes were based on external stimuli, but rather internal ones. It wasn't shaking because it was cold. It was shaking because it was lonely. Aching for a companion. It was lonely, but now I had found it. We had been united. Or reunited, whichever was the truth. And I suppose it didn't matter. Perhaps we were united and reunited. Perhaps our bonds stretched not only across space, however far apart we had been since we last were together, but across time as well. Maybe our connection, our kinship, was forged in the vast ocean of the primordial, stretched across eons from the Big Bang to the heat death of the universe and beyond. 
spanned across distances so great the human mind literally cannot comprehend them. That's how I began to feel about the thing in the bowl as I laid there in bed. A boundless well of affinity. Deep, true love. I fetched the bowl off the table in the kitchen and brought it to bed, at which point I fell soundly asleep. I had kicked the bowl over in the night, and the thing had rolled across the sheets, leaving a trail of slime that had hardened into a crust. It came to rest near my pillow, which was now slightly damp from the thing's viscous secretions. I took the towel from the bowl and used it to scoop the thing off of my bed. The thing's form seemed quite a bit softer as I lifted it off the bed and into the bowl. Squishier than yesterday when I found it. Like a piece of fruit, softening up, becoming overripe. It was colder, too, and it wasn't trembling any longer. When it was back in the bowl, and I had placed the bowl back on the table, the top of the thing, did the thing have a top, was sagging slightly. No longer was the thing generally spherical, but deformed and oblong. Upon closer inspection, the thing's outer membrane lacked the slick shine of yesterday as well, and though I wouldn't directly touch the thing myself, it appeared tacky and dried out. The thing was sick, or if it wasn't sick, it was unwell in some other way, drained of something essential. Looking down on it, I felt the overwhelming need to ease the helpless thing's suffering. I tried to put myself in the position of the thing, immobile, unable to communicate. What would I need after waking up in the morning, after a long night's sleep? Were I not able to get out of bed, what would I probably hope for the most upon waking? On a whim, I went to the drawer and grabbed a spoon, held it under the tap, and then took my spoonful of water to the bowl. I braced myself, hoping I was not about to do the exact opposite thing I was hoping to do, and sprinkled the water over my little companion. The water beaded together and then rolled down the thing's outer membrane, and then the thing deformed, stretching itself back and forth. As it did this, the water droplets slowly disappeared, absorbed into its spongy flesh. Within minutes, some of the color returned to it. Those reds and pinks and greens became more apparent. I went to the sink and returned with another spoonful of water. Sprinkling it on, it absorbed the moisture and its skin began to show signs of slickness once more. The clear secretions from unseen glands began to cover the thing's membrane. I hurried to the sink once more. Standing there, watching the thing absorb the third spoonful of water, my heart swelled with a parental pride. I had seen the thing suffering and discovered a way to ease it. It was thirsty. It was thirsty and I did my job as its caretaker by quenching that thirst. Later, I laid on the couch with a book in my hands and ignored the words on its pages. My gaze was fixed, as you could imagine, just above the pages of the book, past my raised feet, into the kitchen, and to the glass bowl containing that small thing. 
I don't know who I thought I was fooling with my act. No one else was in my home. The raised book served no purpose except to, perhaps, fool myself into thinking I could have something else on my mind. But I couldn't. I put the book down on the coffee table by my side and raised my body up by my elbows. Getting a good look, the globular sphere was still in the bowl, still trembling every so often. I got up from the couch and, once in the kitchen, gave the little thing some more water and then picked up the bowl and brought it with me when I returned to the couch. I couldn't be sure, and it may have just been me seeing what I wanted to see, but it seemed to me that when I brought the bowl near me, when I held the thing nearby, it trembled less. It seemed to calm itself. Its sporadic convulsions became pronounced, and they started to take on a slow and methodical character, like a person stretching after remaining in one position for too long. I laid on the couch and watched the thing move back and forth, gently stretching its form against the confines of its glass bowl. My mouth curled into a satisfied smile, and then I had a realization. If it needed to drink, it would also need to eat. If you have a favorite story that I've told here on Death, Dying, and Other Things, hit me up on Twitter. I'd love to hear about it. I started with whatever was in my refrigerator. Carrots and slices of cucumber were the first to be rejected. I placed them in the bowl around the thing and it did nothing. For several minutes, the vegetables laid in the bowl, on top of and around the thing's form, and nothing happened. I retrieved them carefully. My next thought was, having no evidence of any sort of mouth through which the thing might eat, that it may need to absorb its nutrients through its outer membrane in much the same way it drew in water. I threw the carrots and cucumbers into the blender until they had formed a thin paste and dropped several spoonfuls onto the thing. Ten minutes later, a dry, cracking crust of vegetable matter encased the thing as it had drawn all the moisture out of the paste. I went to the linen closet for a washcloth and dampened it in the kitchen sink. I removed the dish towel from around the thing. It was slick with clear goo, but that, oddly, made it better for my current purposes. I shaped it in the center of the table into a kind of nest, a makeshift home for the thing. I tipped the glass bowl over and poured the thing out into the kitchen towel. I took the damp washcloth and began slowly wiping away the vegetable matter crust the thing had taken on. Starting at the top, I gently ran the damp cloth down over the length of the thing, and then started again a half an inch over. Gently, carefully, so that I wasn't too forceful, so that I didn't hurt it. I was so concerned with the thing's comfort that I didn't feel my right index finger slipping through one of the folds of the washcloth until it was too late. 
It happened so quickly that I didn't realize what had happened until it was over. My right index finger slipped through the washcloth and rubbed against the thing's outer membrane. The moment this happened, the thing reacted. The thing's skin crumpled and twisted, and my finger plunged through the membrane into some wet opening. Then there was searing pain, and as I reacted by yanking my finger away and back toward my body, the thing came with it for a brief second, and then fell back to the table, where it rolled across the table and onto the floor. Regret welled in my chest as I grabbed the bowl and fell to my knees. I used the washcloth to scoop the thing back into the bowl and then found myself whispering to it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I repeated as I lifted the bowl back to the table. I'm sorry. What was I sorry about? I was sorry for throwing the thing to the ground. I was sorry for hurting it. I was sorry for not knowing what I was supposed to feed it. What was wrong with me? I looked down at my finger. A large, two-centimeter chunk of flesh was missing from my right index finger now. It was quietly oozing blood. I hurried to the bathroom and wrapped my finger in a thick layer of gauze. I wasn't going to the hospital, so this would have to do. I looked up at myself in the mirror, probably for the first time since I had brought home my little guest. My eyes had gone dull. The bags under my eyes were thick and heavy. My hair was stringy. My skin was loose and pale, and I had only been together with the thing for a day and a half. I looked into my own eyes, mining their depths, trying to convince myself I hadn't realized what was now painfully obvious. Deep down I knew. I knew what the thing out in that glass bowl on the kitchen table ate, and what I would need to feed it. The knife was only an inch from my leg. Held in my trembling fingers, a small craft blade, so sharp. I knew the sting of that blade well. Countless times my grip had slipped, or I had gotten careless slicing a sheet of paper or some other material for a craft. Maybe I was hand-making thank-you cards, or perhaps cutting a length of wire to attach to a frame. Whatever it was, I often found the blade biting into my finger. Usually, I didn't feel anything at first. The blade would find purchase in my skin, and until I noticed the blood seeping out of the thin wound, the intense sting would bide its time. Thus, I knew what to expect when I finally plunged the blade into my right leg. It would sting, then begin to burn, then the intense searing pain would shoot up from my leg, through my nerves, to my brain, and if I was lucky, I would not immediately pull the blade back out. If I was lucky, I would fight through the pain and run the knife down my leg several inches. Perhaps four or five, I hadn't yet decided. Then, I would remove the bloody blade, ignore the seeping, bloody wound, and do it again, slicing out a thin strip of my own flesh. But I knew I couldn't do what I intended to do with my muscles working against me such as they were. The shiver in my forearm would not abate. I put the knife down on the table. 
It rolled away from me, rolled across the wood, and hit the glass bowl several feet away. The sharp clink of metal against glass made me wince. The thing inside the bowl quivered in response. I watched it for a moment, the convulsing ripple across the thing's outer membrane. My eyes began watering. The thing trembled again, and suddenly, deep in my guts, a void opened. Something empty and profound. A deep, primal hunger. So considerable in its potency that I nearly buckled from the pain. Instead, I stood and hurried over to the refrigerator and ate until I threw up, never feeling any less ravenous. I looked over to the thing, over to the glass bowl, over to the craft knife on the table. I returned to it, grabbed it, and plunged it into my leg. The blood was plentiful, as was the pain, but once I was done, and the thing that I found in the woods was fed, I didn't feel so hungry anymore. The wound on my leg was difficult to dress myself. Bandages, gauze, wraps, all seeped through with blood. Very soon I had amassed a great pile of various linens soaked through with red. I started to think about how much blood I was losing and began to feel dizzy. What finally stopped the bleeding was patience and a copious amount of superglue. But what became apparent was that this method of feeding would not be sustainable. Several hours later, I sat on the couch, gritting my teeth against the still-burning gash in my thigh. Long, slow breaths in and out, the one trick I still used from the days of seeing my therapist. The thing, calm and content and full of my flesh, seemed to mirror my breathing as I watched it from the couch. I closed my eyes and laid my head back against the couch's cushions. When I took the next breath in, something happened in my head. It felt like something snapped deep in my brain like a piece of my consciousness broke off from the rest and was being pulled away. I suddenly felt as though I was being drawn backward away from my body, and I could sense my material form getting smaller and smaller as I retreated from it with each breath. I was floating in a great cosmic soup. All around me, I sensed remnants of other consciousnesses, and my impression was that they were not all human. I opened my eyes again. Looking at the clock, it seemed I had been sitting on the couch for quite some time at least an hour, though it didn't feel like it. It didn't feel like I had fallen asleep. I didn't think I had been dreaming. My meditation, though, had made me tired, and so I picked up the glass bowl and crawled into bed. I nearly tumbled out of bed when I opened my eyes the following morning, recoiling in surprise and gratitude that the bowl hadn't toppled. By the morning, the thing had outgrown its home, some horrible growth spurt had taken hold, its folds and flaps of skin multiplying, its moist flesh twisting and stretching, filling the bowl and then some, though it didn't appear that the thing was any more mobile than it had been the day before. 
I watched the thing from the side of the bed for several minutes, looking for a change in behavior, but the only thing of note was that the periodic shudders, those great tremors so common to the thing, were simply larger and more pronounced to go along with its new size. I reached out and grabbed the bowl with both hands, careful not to let the thing's many hanging bits of fleshy mass touch me, lest they would take a bite out of my forearm. I walked the thing into the bathroom and poured the bowl out into the bathtub. The thing cascaded out of that bowl, but then hit the porcelain bath with a solid crack, like the non-Newtonian fluid of cornstarch and water I created for my third-grade science fair. After the initial impact, the thing stretched out, losing its spherical shape and covering most of the bottom of the tub. If there was any doubt to my conclusion the night before that I would not be able to feed my companion as I had, it was now solidified. I would need much more food for the thing if its current growth rate would sustain itself. The plastic was easy to come by. Much easier than I assumed it would be. I found it in the same hardware store that I found the hammer and saw... I initially thought that the tub would be the perfect place to do it, but of course, my tub is occupied by the very reason I was now covering every surface of my living room with plastic sheeting. The process took a lot longer than I thought it would. I wanted to be thorough. I didn't want a mess that was harder to clean up than it had to be. When I was finished, I sat in the plastic-coated living room for a long while, contemplating what I had to do. From the bathroom, I could feel the thing reaching out to me. I felt its hunger down in my guts, a ravenous appetite that I couldn't hope to sate by eating. The only hope I had for my own appetite was to feed the thing. He hadn't said a word to me before I cracked his skull with my hammer. I didn't know his name when my saw bit into his limbs. I didn't know anything about him as I threw him, piece by piece, into the tub. There was so much blood, so much that I didn't expect. Everything about the human body looked different from the inside. It made me sick, but something kept me from vomiting. Something kept my dinner down. By the time I had thrown the third section of torso, the last of the body, into the tub, I was covered in blood and exhausted, and with nowhere to clean myself off, I collapsed into bed. I now sit with my back against the bathroom door, staring at the bathtub, knowing my time is limited, and relaying this story with what little control I still have over my own body, my own soul, and my own mind. It grew to a shocking size overnight. The thing has outgrown the tub. It hangs on the wall, spills out onto the floor. A mass of flesh and blood and bone and not much else. Even now, looking at the loathsome monster, my heart aches with divine love for the thing. I want to be close to it, always. I see blurred shapes all around me, but even now those shapes are coming into focus. I wish they wouldn't. I wish they'd stayed deep in the forest where I tried to leave them. But they're here now, surrounding me. I stare at the thing from the woods until the shapes have blotted out my vision, leaving me in the dark. I can hear it. 
I can hear it twice. The thing in the tub. The squish, squish, squishing of every movement, every tremble, every shift the thing makes in the tub that's somewhere in the undefined space in front of me. And also I hear it in my head. The whispering, every syllable of that incomprehensible language rattling around in my head, somehow originating from the thing's unseen mouth deep down in my subconscious. It's made its home there. From the moment I saw it on the forest floor, it started knifing its way into my subconscious. There was nothing I could do. Or maybe there was and I wasn't willing to do it. I guess there's not much difference now. I can feel my hands reach out in front of me and press against the floor. I can feel hands dragging myself forward toward the tub. I try to put up a fight, but know that it's no use. The thing has control. Control of everything but my mind. Soon, my treacherous hands have pulled me all the way to the side of the tub. I first feel it on my right shoulder, some abhorrent appendage caressing me just to the side of my neck. Then the pressure, and then the pain, deep into the space between my collarbone and shoulder blade, I feel the thing push, shoving aside skin, muscle, bone, wrapping around something deep in my torso. I can't even scream. I'm so distracted I don't even feel the second appendage until it has wrapped around my face, covering my cheek with a thick film. The limb gropes madly about for something and then finds it. A nostril. I can feel the thing press up into my nose toward my brain, and then everything goes black. First black and then white and then black again, and I tell myself again there's nothing I could have done to prevent this. After all, I knew it when I first found the thing. What I found in the woods was a little piece of myself. This episode of Death, Dying, and Other Things was produced and edited by me, Justin Buskey. The story, What I Found in the Woods, was written by me, too. You can follow me on Twitter, at Justin Buskey. Intro and outro music is by the prolific Eric Warnke. Check him out on SoundCloud. Special thanks to Falling Leaves and Deep Wounds. Death, Dying, and Other Things is a member of the Phantom Podcast Network. Be sure to check out all the other great shows. New episodes the first Thursday of every month. This has been Death, Dying, and Other Things, and I've been your host, Justin Buskey. Stay out of the shadows. Thank you.